0: But St. Augustine said the following, As Christians, you are citizens of two places. You are ultimately a citizen of heaven, the city of God. But this side of eternity, you're in the city of man. And we are duty-bound to love and to serve our neighbors. And I believe that Jesus Christ gave us a beautiful model and paradigm that I think is timeless and I think it fits in precisely into the 21st century. That's Tim Gegline, VP of External and Government Relations
1: for Focus on the Family. He has some profound things to say about his love for America and the concerns he has for the culture and the need for each of us as believers to share how faith and freedom are inseparable. Welcome to Refocus with Jim Daly, a podcast production from Focus on the Family. I really love this conversation with Tim because it, it brought to light the issues that we're facing in the culture today and the bedrock foundation of our Judeo-Christian heritage. And at some point, we're hopeful that these things will once again align so truth can be truth. Uh, and Tim has some great insights on how we can achieve that not in our strength, but in the strength and power of God. Tim will help us to uh, connect the dots on issues of the Christian faith and what America stands for and where the culture is at today as he shares his perspectives. From the time spent in the halls of Congress and on college campuses, what Tim is doing in his engagements with others is exactly what Refocus is about. And I think you'll be uh, riveted when you hear what he has to say. Many of the ideas he'll share are from his book Toward a More Perfect Union, The Moral and Cultural Case for teaching the great American story. And unfortunately, in so many places, it's not being taught today. So let's get into it. Here's Tim Gagline with me on Refocus with Jim Daly.
0: Tim, thanks for joining me. It's a pleasure and an honor. Thank it's you. It's so
1: good, and it's wonderful, uh, your contribution out in D.C., and you and I have a lot of fun together. Yes, I we think, do. you know, you just have such a wonderful temperament as a D.C. In the Beltway, kind of guy. Thank you. You're not. You're in it, but not of it. Thank and you. And I so appreciate that. And Your friendship uh, list is uh, astonishing. You know, over the years. So, just quickly, I mean, you worked with Dan Coates, Dan Quayle, yes. even all the way back there. Yes. And then uh, the W White House uh, President uh, George W. Bush. Yes. What, what amazing experiences. You know, so often that power can be blinding, and you're observing it as a staff member, especially with the White House. Is there like a particular story, a good one, that stands out where you went, wow, this is amazing to be here and to watch this?
0: It was Veterans Day.
1: <laughs> of...
0: I didn't know you had an answer to that, so that's even better. <laughs> it was Veterans Day of uh, 2004, and I had a very good friend who uh, had a mission in life. Her mission in life was to honor veterans, and especially the veterans who uh, had returned from war, but had returned from war with very substantial physical and, and mental uh, issues. Mm. And, uh, and I got to know her well and loved her ministry, and in the spare time that I had, found great joy, frankly, in meeting these men and women who had sacrificed so much for our country. Everything. Everything everything. And at one of these sessions, my friend said, I want to find a way to say thank you to you. And I uh, said, no thank you necessary. I I owe you the thanks. Uh, A few weeks later, she invited me on Veterans Day to Arlington National Cemetery. And she said that they were going to be doing a very important ceremony there, and would I come and be a part of it? And I said I, I would be very honored, because a number of the people in her ministry were going to be there uh, uh, that morning. So I arrived, Jim, at Arlington, and I'm directed uh, behind the uh, Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. Mm. What What am I doing here? And I soon learned at the 11th hour that my job that day is to represent George W. Bush and to present a wreath in honor of those who had paid the ultimate sacrifice. Wow, what a privilege. You know, uh, I'm sure that if I live to be a thousand years old, I will never forget that morning because I had four uncles who served in World War II, praise God they all came back. My best friend is my dad. Uh, he's a Navy veteran, and I have an uncle who is honored, you know, in Arlington National Cemetery, having died in Vietnam. Yeah. So it was a very impactful and powerful uh, morning to pay homage to the sacrifice uh, and to represent the president of the United States. That's a great story and one of many that you have. You've written this great
1: book, Toward a More Perfect Union, The Moral and Cultural Case for Teaching the Great American Story. Uh, when you look at this idea of toward a more perfect union, you know, everybody's gonna have a perception, this is politics, it's the culture, it's where we live. Um, a, we're never really gonna get to a perfect union. That's right. Except. For Christians, we're going to arrive in heaven, and God has created a perfect place there. Yes, but for us in that striving, um, have we
0: come a long way, or are we going backward? Uh, I think both at the same time. Yeah, hmm. uh, and you're 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 great to ask. And I purposely selected that phrase from the preamble to the Constitution toward a more perfect union. As you say, Jim, it's aspirational. It's not we're a perfect union it's that that is what we aspire to and the subtitle is you know the moral and cultural case for teaching the great american story Mm -hmm. and here's the bottom line in my wonderful work for focus on the family i travel about a third of the time Mm. and i am always sobered and a bit shocked because i spend a lot of time with young people on campuses and you know you'll mention something uh in american history that you are certain that everybody knows and these are elite colleges often very often yeah and i i found in doing the empirical research for this book that overwhelmingly we're living in a time of cultural amnesia the historic the cultural the constitutional illiteracy among the rising generation of young americans is very substantial and our founding fathers and mothers said, how do you have liberty and freedom over time, but, uh, but always making sure that the next generation understands uh, citizenship, understands yeah. the American story? And I think we're in a moment which is a bit of a hinge history uh, in America. Mm. In fact, uh, you cited a poll taken in 2021
1: that indicated only 36% of adults Ages eighteen to twenty-four, so that's new adults at eighteen yes. right, to twenty-four, kind of your college-age kids, right? Uh, said they were proud to be a, American, compared to eighty-six percent for those over sixty-five. Now, I'd say, like Churchill said, you know, you're a socialist in your twenties because you have a heart your capitalist in your 30s because you have a brain. Right. And you know, maybe the older generation just has greater wisdom and better understands the world that we live in and maybe it has traveled a bit to come to that conclusion. That's mm-hmm. something for me. Traveling the globe, I've been to 70 countries. We do have an amazing, if not the most amazing country in this world. And I literally one of those days I got back from a trip, it was hard, uh, third world countries uh, very high poverty rates, you know, poor medical, the whole bit. And I got down and kissed the ground when I got mm-hmm. back, and I meant it.
0: Yes. Uh, I, I can't wait to respond to this point. <laughs> I have a love affair with America, and I always have since I was a boy. But it's not blind patriotism. You know, it, this is a country, a culture, and a civilization that is worthy of our love. It's worthy of our patriotism. It's healthy and good to teach the rising generation of young Americans the American story. But we cut everyone short if we teach them that this is a perfect country. Yeah, because I don't think anybody's ever said that. No, exactly right. And I think that it's very important, not that we say we want to go back to 1920 or back to 1950 or whatever that is. I think we have to be forward-looking and say, what about the future? What about the time in which we find ourselves? And I think, Jim, we have a bit of reform. You know, We have to reform in order to preserve. And I think if we're going to preserve our constitutional republic, we have to be busy and intentional about teaching the great American story. Why is the founding important? Why is the Constitution important? Why did the Civil War matter? What was going on in Vietnam? What's Watergate about? What about the social and the moral revolution of the 1960s, 70s, and 80s? What is the Cold War? It's important that our young people know that. And, and in my travels for Focus on the Family, what I have realized is that we have gaps, we have chasms among the young people in our country, but I'm a bottomless optimist I mean, I'm an inveterate optimist because I believe at the same time that we're in this difficult moment, I think we are also seeing at the exact same time a parental and a grandparental rebellion. People are saying, Can I run for the school board? What is a school board? What is a curriculum? No, which is great. Exactly, that's how you regain these truths and the ability to be able to inculcate them appropriately into kids. I feel very strongly that that the reform that we all want begins in the family. (sighs) Yeah, it begins in marriage. It begins in our churches, in our communities. Yeah. There's such a, I don't know,
1: kind of a vogueness to wanting to be contrarian. The problem is those contrarian people are mainline now. I mean, what's contrarian is to be Christian yes. and to believe in the founding of the country because, unfortunately, the public school system has done such a number on young people to teach them things that are so far outside mm. reality. In fact, you look back at 2020, that polarization in the country, of course, we had you know some social things that occurred, the George Floyd situation where he was killed by a police officer. But, I mean, statues being torn down, uh, critical race theory being shoved into public schools, into our kids... Um, you know, protest violence. You live in DC. That was one of the hotspots. What what was that like actually seeing it firsthand and looking out and seeing all the fencing going up around
0: our so-called people's house? Yes, I can't wait to respond to this as well. Four blocks from the Focus on the Family office in Washington, DC is the second most famous depiction of Abraham Lincoln on the East Coast. We all know, of course, the Lincoln Memorial and the great uh, statue by Daniel Chester French. But just four blocks from our office uh, in Lincoln Park Mm -hmm. uh, is a famous statue of Abraham Lincoln. Two slaves, uh, former emancipated slaves, are depicted in this statue. And Jim, this statue, this beautiful piece of artwork, was commissioned by emancipated slaves. Frederick Douglass spoke uh, at the dedication of this Lincoln, this other Lincoln Memorial in our nation's capital, in the shadow of the dome of the Capitol. And yet in the summer of 2020, neighbors from the Lincoln Park area had to come out in droves to form a circle around the Abraham Lincoln statue because there were other people who wanted to rip it down who wanted to destroy it, who wanted to vandalize it. In New York City, Theodore Roosevelt, whose family essentially helped create the most important natural history museum in the entire world, right? Right Right across from Central Park. We have to remember that his statue was pulled from its plinth, boxed up, and sent to North Dakota. Uh, I mean, we're living in the era of erasure we're living in the era of cancel culture. We're living in the era of Wokistan. This is not good for the country. It's not good for culture. And it's really in in opposition to healthy dialogue and conversation. And, you
1: know, in that context, and you mentioned this in the book, um, there's a a person that kind of leads this in the U.S. And his name, he's passed away, I believe, but Howard Zinn, who was a Marxist uh, philosopher, Um, but he's had extreme influence in the country. Uh, Others may not know anything about him. Explain who he was and how he helped to kind of begin this revisionist attack on history so that it would serve a
0: purpose. And what's that purpose? I asked myself in writing this book, Jim, where did all this come from? Why do our young people not understand the American story? Is it deliberate? Is it is it poor parenting? Is it poor teaching? <laughs> you know, okay. And I came. Yes, to, yes, and yes. It's all of the above in part, but one of the things that I think is so important, and it's the reason that I dedicate an entire chapter to Howard Zinn, is because Howard Zinn was among the first to completely revise the American story. As a neo Marxist, his goal was to erase the American memory and to change the American narrative to fit his narrative. And he wrote the single most important, influential textbook in American history. His book, The People's History of the United States, Jim, is so influential that all of the other people who share the same worldview have merely written versions of Howard Zinn's book, and this single text has been used as the principal textbook to teach American history in primary schools, secondary schools, colleges, and universities now for uh, almost four decades. So the damage done by Howard Zinn is almost incalculable. And of course, we've seen this bleed over into things like the 1619 Project, which posits, of course, that America was not born on July 4th, 1776, but instead was born in 1619 when the slave ships came to the coastlands of what is now the Commonwealth of Virginia. I mean, Jim, I don't even speak this way, but that's a lie. I mean, it's irredeemably flawed history. in fact, slavery did not come to North America by the British uh, on the coastlands of uh, of Virginia. I think that's one of the things that makes it
1: so frustrating as a parent. Now, thankfully, my boys went to a school that taught the Declaration, taught the Constitution. They had to read it, they had to regurgitate questions about it, you know, and answers, which was really good. So we have that common vocabulary, but shockingly, so few public schools mm. require any kind of civics lesson now.
0: Uh, Most kids don't even know the Constitution. I I can't wait to share this. In behalf of Focus on the Family, I was teaching, uh, asked to teach or speak uh, in five classes at one of the most well-known universities in the United States. And uh, across all of those classes, I asked, how many of you are from California or have spent part of your young lives in California? Jim, there was a forest of hands. Okay. Put your hands down. I said, okay, how many of you have ever heard of Father Sarah? Right. Jim, across five classes, one hand. Which is amazing, because I was raised in California, and that was taught to us back in the 60s and 70s. Father Sarah, essentially one of, of, if not the most important founders of California. The whole idea of the missions. I mean, California is an extraordinary uh, state. This remarkable history of a single state, but it's impossible to understand California's greatness without understanding the missions and what they meant to the contribution and the building of California. He's been erased. Because he's not politically correct. Chief Seattle. I write about Chief Seattle at length. Chief Seattle deserves to be better known. There's a reason that Seattle, Washington is named for this remarkable American Indian. He was so great, Jim, he was the chief of not one but two tribes, but he was a slaveholder and therefore he's been erased. I spoke in behalf of Focus on the Family at another major college, this one, an elite one. I wasn't speaking about World War II, but I mentioned Winston Churchill. And Jim, afterward, I mean, you know this, you do a lot of public speaking after you've you know, spoken and do the Q and A, people come down uh, to the podium to kibitz and talk and conversate. And I had a, a sizable number of young undergraduates who came down and said, We're so pleased that you mentioned this character, Winston Churchill. Tell us more about him. We've never heard about him. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. And I'm thinking to myself, how did this happen?
1: Yeah. You know? Well, let me ask you this, because part of it, you know, we look at conspiracies, and I don't like to be in that category. But there does seem to be a consistent, systematic deconstruction of our history, of what is right, what is acceptable etc and you know in the beginning here like i talked about in 2020 it takes the form of what seems to be like this chaos all of a sudden people looting people doing things breaking things down going after statues talking about the cancel culture and things like that is it wrong to think this is just some kind of bizarre spontaneous response or is this
0: calculated i feel very strongly that is not conspiratorial in the least bit to say that there are two colossal competing Mm worldviews. There is one worldview that says that the United States of America objectively uh, is a remarkable country, that Western civilization from which America is born is worth knowing about. You have to know why Jerusalem, Athens, Rome, Philadelphia, and London, you have to know why they matter. You have to know the importance of the French Revolution and the Bolshevik Revolution. You have to know why Winston Churchill was the lion in winter and why his courage mattered. We have to understand why Adolf Hitler and Joseph Stalin were evil. We have to understand why Lincoln was great. We have to understand why Abigail Adams and Harriet Tubman uh, are important uh, and central to the American story. And when we erase them, when we cancel them, we are against a worldview that says objective truth does not ultimately matter, that all morals are relative, and that nihilism is acceptable, and that you can have it uh, as as an applied reality to the next generation of young people.
1: Yeah, and the reality of all of this is we as a culture will decide if it's going to take us to this dead end. Or if we're going to make some corrections and get back to becoming a more perfect union. That's it. And I mean, that is the crux of the whole thing. It seems like a daunting task right now to consider that there's some way that the healthy aspects of our history can be reintroduced and pursued in terms of the Constitution, the Declaration. In fact, let's go back for people that may not have been exposed to it. Uh, the Founding Fathers were certainly not perfect people. I, I actually haven't met a perfect person. I know I'm not perfect. Um, But this reality that they created these documents, the uh, Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, I'll I'll give an example and then you can bounce off of it. There's so much in there beyond Mm. just the issue of emancipation. But I remember uh, Shelby Steele, a professor and I think a think tank man now at uh, Stanford University, an African-American, who said... You know, people fail to remember, and I believe there was a survey of college students some time ago that didn't even believe slavery existed outside of the U.S. Mm. That the U.S. created it, formed it, and was the big um, abuser of it. This was a international thing that occurred in Africa in the beginning, African on African slavery, tribal slavery. And then it, it was exported in the 1600s and even earlier for Europe. But being Irish, we were slaves, too, to the British. Mm -hmm. I mean, it it wasn't new is the point. It was the social engine of, in so many ways, labor, right? Yes. And so Shelby Steele's comment really caught me. He said, if you think about it, it's a 3,000-year-old industry, slavery. The founding fathers, albeit imperfect, knew they could not solve it at the time. But they created a document in the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence that all men are created equal they couldn't apply it at the time but they gave the on ramp for Abraham Lincoln mm-hmm. to 80 90 years later be able to make that declaration yes and free the slaves and you know when you think about it in that context of a 3000 year industry that was abusive we get all that there's nobody defending it if we could take today's viewpoint and drive it all the way back mm-hmm. who in their right mind would support slavery it just was and it was okay. for many people around the globe right african american irish you name it. And uh, they bore the brunt of that here in the U.S., obviously. But the point Shelby's making is that there was some brilliance in what they did. And they get absolutely no credit for creating a way forward, which is your point. Mm.
0: There's a lot in that, and I'm eager to unpack it. (laughs) Point one, when Jefferson wrote the Declaration of Independence, this is rather remarkable. At what age, by the way? Under the age of 35. Yeah, amazing. James Madison, the principal architect of our United States Constitution, probably next to the Holy Bible, the single most influential document for uh, freedom ever in the history of mankind. Madison was under the age of 45 when he uh, drafted that uh, document. But for George Washington, there would be no United States of America. He was truly Jim the indispensable man. Uh, Abraham Lincoln, talk about a man who never had a day of peace. Hmm. On his inauguration day, seven states had seceded. And in the five years of his presidency, not even five years, 750,000 Americans would lose their lives in the greatest conflagration in American history, many of them cousins and brothers shooting each other to death in their own peach orchards okay, for the emancipation of of enslaved uh, Americans. Slavery is evil. Slavery is a great sin. Slavery is indefensible. But we have to take it in the entire context of the history of our constitutional republic. You know, uh, if we were to begin uh, the discussion of the importance of World War II or the Civil War or World War I or the American Revolution, Without context, it would be a very, very dangerous thing, and I think we have entered into these kind of waters where we are uh, beginning all of our discussions now of the founding generation. For those who were not abolitionists, you know, we're we're beginning our discussions uh, with slavery. And I think uh, contextually, I think it's unfair, and I think it's bad history.
1: Yeah. Two of the founders, and you mentioned this story in the book, and a lot of people may not recall this or know this, but two of the founders, John Adams and Thomas Jefferson, uh, they had different political views and philosophies, and they went after each other for many years. But
0: eventually, they did become friends. Share the context of that, and what can we learn from it? I'm a great fan of both men, but for entirely different reasons. John Adams, a granitic uh, Yankee. Uh, he was. Uh, he. I mean, if you had to have a Webster's uh, definition of a Yankee and an Englander, you would pick John Adams. Self-made, Harvard, brilliant, a genius, a self-made man, an abolitionist from the beginning, and a true expert on the Constitution. Thomas Jefferson, entirely different. He was the head. You know, the top of the Virginia Regency. A fluid pen, a great philosopher. Both men were uncomfortable in large groups of people. They, uh, one from the South, a slaveholder, uh, Thomas Jefferson, uh, as I said earlier, Adams, Massachusetts, the opposite. But they agreed on the most important things. They agreed on the Constitution. They agreed on the Declaration. They agreed on the importance of the Federalist Papers, the greatest catechesis of why we should have the United States of America. And over the French Revolution, they had an enormous break in their friendship. In fact, it destroyed their friendship, and they were completely out of touch. And a common friend, one of the most prominent evangelicals in our founding, the most prominent doctor in the founding, Benjamin Russ of Philadelphia, decided that the break in this friendship could not stand. And he reintroduced them to each other. He introduced the importance of forgiveness and grace to them. And by God's grace, the break in their friendship was healed. They became great friends as old men. They both lived a long time. And believe it or not, Jim, they died on the same day, July 4th. Uh, and uh, it was—it's it, an amazing story, but it's an amazing story of magnanimity and grace, and uh, you know, and trying to bridge the biggest differences that we have. It's important uh, to find common ground then and now. Yeah,
1: and, and the, the difficulty I see is the application today is so riddled with additional things. Imagine social media in their day and what that would have looked like, and the damage that it does mm-hmm. today. When it comes to division and polarity and all those things, how in the world can we bridge that kind of gap today in these core areas, uh, racial divide, and especially when maybe even outside forces are using those mechanisms like social media to intensify the divide? Um, you know, it's one of the things that communism has been trying to do to the US for d- decades, if not over a century and that's to divide americans so it would crumble so Mm -hmm. the u.s experiment would crumble
0: we are undoubtedly in an era of hyper polarization i think we are as divided on big questions uh, jim as we were in the era of the civil war and uh, in in the american revolution however uh, i remain very optimistic and i think with good reason on these questions, you know, uh, in the American Revolution, one third of the American people did not support the revolution, and one third supported the British Empire. Only a third of Americans supported what was called the cause, the American Revolution. Yeah, think of that. How about the Civil War? I mentioned earlier not just the death of uh, of Americans, North and South, the terrible property damage. I mean, it, it, it really was calamitous, you know, the moral and social revolution of the 60s and 70s. And during those era, uh, people said, we've never been more divided. This can never be healed. The fact is, uh, we have had great eras in American history of division and of reconciliation. And my sense of things uh, in light of our great conversation and in my research for the book is that I think there are people of goodwill on both sides of this chasm. And I believe that if we begin with the premise that we can only befriend someone who agrees with us all the time, that to me is completely unrealistic. I think with Adams and with Jefferson, I think we have to use them in part as a model to say, but where can we agree? Where's the 20%? You know, Where's the 30% on things in which we can agree? And then on the things that we can't agree, we're going to settle those things in the public square uh, with dialogue, with conversation, with engagement. You know, it's one of the things that we at Focus on the Family do in Washington D.C., the political capital of our country. It's one of the things that we do in New York City, the cultural capital of our country. We we, we meet with everybody. You know, if if we said we're not going to have breakfast, lunch, or dinner with anybody who doesn't agree with us, we would have breakfast, lunch, and dinner alone a lot you know i think it's important to engage i think it's important to have public discourse i think it's important to transcend ideological differences and to be able to share the gospel i agree yeah and then let them share with us what they believe
1: yeah it's been actually quite satisfying to work with you in that regard going to the washington post or the new york times or the senate or the house Um, Let's pull that analogy of Adams and Jefferson forward a little bit with different people. Yes. Uh, Scalia, Supreme Court Justice Scalia, and his uh, colleague, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the other Supreme Court Justice. I would say philosophically, they were definitely on different ends of -hmm. of the uh, judicial philosophy. But they did find a way to become friends. They talked about it. I think they did that purposefully to try to demonstrate that it can be done. Mm -hmm.
0: But it was kind of unique. Very unique and very important. And uh, I was so honored to be there for the funeral mass of Justice Scalia. And, uh, and also to be there when Justice Ginsburg gave one of the most powerful, beautiful analogies I've ever heard. Hmm. And what she said is the following, Jim. She said, the reason that we were such great friends for all of those years uh, is that we attacked each other's ideas. We did not attack each other. It's a very Christian thought. It was a remarkable <laughs> a remarkable sentiment, yeah. you know, and it's true. Ruth Ginsburg is one of the most progressive living constitutionalists in the history of the United States Supreme Court, Jewish, New York, Columbia University. Uh, Antonin Scalia, one of our greatest originalists, one of our greatest constitutionalists, one of our greatest textualists, Catholic, New York and New Jersey, Georgetown, Harvard, very different. And yet their families spent Hanukkah and Christmas together. Their families became good friends. They found common ground. Were they going to agree on the question of abortion? No, they were not. Were they going to ultimately agree on so many of the cutting-edge issues of our time? Decidedly not. But they decided that in the brilliance of the American experience, that there was a way to communicate and to work together in the public square without shooting each other in the streets. And this is a great achievement because it's a fulfillment of the vision of our founders.
1: You know what? It can be so disconcerting when you look at everything arrayed against uh, what I would call traditionalists. Yes. Often the conservative side of uh, the populace. I put myself in that category. I believe in the family, I believe in God, you know, all those core things. But, man, you go to elite institutions, it's just not there. In fact, you spoke, I believe, at the New York Press Club, where you were the only conservative there uh, up against whatever. How many? A hundred people? And they love to toy with us to bring us into that environment and say, oh, we got our token conservative here. Let's hear what he has to
0: say. And Mm. then, wham, they attack you. (laughs) Uh, What was that experience like? Uh, You know, when you uh, experience... Jim, aggressive secularism. Up close. (laughs) That's a great way to put it. Up close and personal. It can be very affronting and it can be very sobering. And yet, I I think it's true, isn't it? That Jesus Christ taught us that we are to go uh, into the public square and we're to go into the public square confident, right, in what it is that we believe and why we believe it. And we have to have confidence that the Holy Spirit will give to us the right words, the right approach, that, uh, frankly, that the Holy Spirit would put us with people who most vociferously disagree with us. You know, I, it, I, I, I welcome that.
1: I, and what's so good about that, the longer I live, especially as a Christian, the more I, I understand the simplicity of God. Mm. When you can do that, it doesn't require a lot it requires faith and commitment. It is a lot, but when you can stand in that public square calmly, Mm. soberly, hopefully intelligently, and be able to express these fundamental truths of what we believe, the problem those that would oppose God have is that confidence that we have,
0: that calmness. It unnerves them. You know, it's very interesting that you would ask the question in light of the context of where I found myself, because very shortly thereafter, I read a beautiful essay from Thomas More, and Thomas More wrote this essay just before he lost his life uh, on, a, on a question of central justice. And in this essay, Jim, he mentions Joseph of antiquity, and he says in this context that, uh, that the malice and the hatred of his brothers were a greater blessing to Joseph than if it had been love and devotion. Now that seems counterintuitive, but I think what we have to, to uh, exemplify and to model in the public square is that as Christians, we are to live counterculturally, we are to live transformatively, but joyfully. We're joyfully, <laughs> but we are not to trim our sails on the most important questions, mm. grace, magnanimity, civility, but unapologetically, God puts us in particular relationships, and he puts us in particular situations because he wants us to be faithful. And this is the thing that I have learned in my own life, and I and I know that you have, that the most important thing in life is not to be successful or victorious. This is a very difficult thing because we want our children to be victorious and successful. But I think I've learned, I pray that I've learned, that the most important thing in life is faithfulness. And if you're successful and if you're victorious, that's a wonderful thing, you know? But I think it's to be faithful to the first principles. It's to be faithful to the permanent things. Uh, And in the Bible, in the Word, we have a beautiful way to navigate life in the 21st century. And so with all the aggressive secularism and with all the difficulties, Jim, it's still an honor to live in this time.
1: Oh, it is. And one of the things, we have interns, college interns, that come to the campus every summer and they work for eight weeks. And it's really encouraging, these college students, Who are committed believers? Mm. You know, so often we as older Christians are bemoaning the fact that the younger generation just doesn't get it. I would uh, beg to differ with that perspective because we see a lot of quality Mm. uh, Christian young people that come through here at Focus. You see them on Christian campuses around the country, Hillsdale College. These are really bright, committed people. Uh, A lot of them are homeschooled. Yes, you know, and those are some of the brightest minds in the country today, and that's why Ivy League schools like to recruit Mm. homeschool kids, because they pretty much do well on everything that they do, because they've been so well-educated. But there is optimism in that, that Mm. reality will make its way back. Mm. And you can cover, I always use this metaphor of trying to cover God's truth with dirt, but eventually that truth comes back out because Mm. of rain and the the conditions that bring the truth Mm -hmm. back to the top people don't benefit from these idiotic uh, directions that some in the culture take us. Mm. Um, so I shared that optimism. I know a story where you were at UC Berkeley. I think it kind of epitomizes this idea of how to maintain your ground and do it in a good way, a biblical way. UC Berkeley, for those that may not know it, I mean, that's one of the most liberal colleges in the world. Mm. and. Uh, you know they're very proud of that progressivism that they share uh, I used to work in that area I had to go to the campus several times but it, it you know, I would say it's kind of crazy because mm. they're the norms are just so broad and wide, and it wouldn't be it
0: wouldn't be your mom and dad's downtown. That's right. But in that regard, what happened at the Berkeley experience? By the way, when I was at Berkeley, I began my uh, remarks that day by saying what a wonderful thing I thought it was that Berkeley was named for one of the greatest Christians. <laughs> Isn't that and, an irony? and And I was stunned by the fact. That the overwhelming majority of people who were there that day—it was a—it was a substantial number of law students. Uh, Jim, that's ha- great. They—they—they ha- they, they had no idea who who Berkeley was. Okay, isn't that funny? So it's not not nice to prompt that thought. Uh, you know what? I had an an incredibly uh, wonderful and enriching experience at Berkeley. I went. I was invited to speak at the law school. I spoke. Uh, you might imagine there were a few people there who agreed. There was a large number of people who disagreed. But what I was most stunned by, Jim, and and this was one of the great blessings of my time at Focus on the Family, is the former dean of the uh, Berkeley School of Law, then called Bolt Hall, no longer, but uh, Berkeley Law, asked if he could respond to my speech. Hmm. And may I tell you, he disagreed with just about every single thing that I said or asserted. That is a shock. (laughs) (laughs) But he did it with great civility and magnanimity and grace, And we ended up having a fabulous hour, a little over an hour uh, dialogue together afterward Hmm. and remained in touch. And it just seems to me that even in some of these elite institutions where, again, the chasms are yawning and difficult, that we can be blessed with good dialogue. And, and And the best thing that came out of that is that I had several students and faculty say to me that although they disagreed, it was really the first time that they had met someone who had you know, said or asserted some of these ideas. And so I thought that in and of itself was very good news. But in a way, it's very disappointing. You know, A college campus that only
1: has one view and they're shocked that they've heard another. That's so, it's such
0: an antithesis to what college mm-hmm. should be about. You know, it seems to me that the best place for free speech and free expression is in higher education. Uh, And Berkeley would have been a wonderful example of that, but it wasn't. And so it seems to me, attendant to the earlier part of our conversation, that sometimes I believe God uses us as his instrument and his tool and his prism to go in not uh not into the places where we kind of have uh you know uh, normal uh, or regular support but he uses us to go into those citadels uh where maybe for the first time they really are meeting someone like us yeah uh and I and you know to the degree that that's the case praise god
1: you know you think of a UC berkeley it so typifies the ivy league harvard yale the others as well but you, you think of the 60s and 70s, where the students at that time were responding to the Vietnam War, and you know the man had a grip on the country, so to speak. Mm. I, mean, I believe that was the language. I was a very young boy at the time, but I do have older brothers and sisters yes. who, who are living it. Yes. But in that respect, they were protesting the fact that... The other side had the grip on university education Mm. and their lack of ability to see that they have become what they used to oppose. Now they have a grip on university Mm. education and they don't let anybody else to the table. They're brutal in hiring practices when it comes to professorships. If you don't think the way we think, there's no way you're getting through the door. Oh, by the way, that's illegal, but they do it. I mean, what, Mm. it's like 98% of college professors pretty much agree on the social issues
0: and they're all left. Jim, isn't it one of the great ironies of American history that the so-called free speech movement of the 1960s began at Berkeley? And it's the grip of what keeps free speech from happening today. Exactly right. I'd like to go back two steps if I may, however, and I I think this will be of of great interest to, to folks. Uh, When he was 25 years old, now think about this, 25 years old, William F. Buckley wrote a book called God and Man at Yale. And God and Man at Yale in the 1950s, Bill asserted in this book, was a great university that increasingly was rejecting capitalism and free enterprise and embracing collectivism and socialism. And he also said that Yale had been founded primarily by dissenting Protestants right, uh, for the evocation of the Christian faith. And in the 1950s, in this book, Bill said it's becoming a place that is actually hostile to the faith and to religion. And he asserted in God and Man at Yale that at Yale University, they ought to be true to their own legacy, be open to the Christian faith be open to the idea of initiative, social responsibility, uh, free enterprise. Now that's 1955. Here we are in 2023, and what an arc we have witnessed in all of American education. And it's one of the primary reasons that I wrote Toward a More Perfect Union, because it's not just primary, secondary education. It is our colleges and universities that it seems to me have now a moral imperative, right, Uh, to become true to their own roots, and above all, true to what the Constitution says makes for a healthy country. And in fact, I have another example that I think works just as well. I was speaking at a very prominent Midwestern university in behalf of Focus on the Family, And I noticed uh, that in the middle of my speech, uh, a number of members of the LGBTQ community uh, on the campus uh, attended the speech. And afterward, uh, the head of their student group asked uh, if I might speak with them. And I was very happy to do so. And they explained to me all of the things that they believed from their worldview and from their perspective. And of course, I shared with them uh, the things that we at Focus on the Family believe. And of course, there was not uh, immediate uh, agreement in that regard, but what I learned above all was that the dialogue, the conversation, the mutual respect, even if we disagreed, it was important to be having that conversation. And it really struck me that this kind of relational connection is more important now in this era of hyperpolarization, more important now than ever.
1: Yeah, and it's, it's so, so true and accurate. Uh, you challenge Christians to focus not only on what they believe, but why they believe it. Mm. Uh, explain that.
0: If there is an upside to everything, Jim, that we have discussed today, it's no longer easy to live as a biblical Christian in the United States of America. We cannot assume that in any of our uh, major cultural institutions, nor in any of our popular cultural institutions, that somehow the narrative agrees with us. That was not always the case. And so for the first time, in a major way, the rising generation of young Americans have to determine what their worldview is. Why is it that I believe what I believe? And uh, those of us who are Christians, I believe, have a a duty, a moral duty uh, to convey why it is and what it is we believe to this generation, because it's very difficult for them. They fear being canceled. They uh, fear social uh, ostracization. They feel uh, having their future job prospects damaged. Uh, I mean, social media can be a great tool for good. And it can also be a great tool for destruction. Well, what's chilling, think of what you're describing. It is a totalitarianism Mm. that if you
1: have a different opinion, then you can't find a job or you Mm. get fired. I mean, that is chilling
0: stuff. I'm eager to share this. I was at a dinner party with a, a group of young, bright, smart undergraduates last December in Washington. And uh, a woman uh, who is at Stanford University, a native Californian, who shares our worldview, who was raised on Focus on the Family, who loves this ministry, she said to me that all of her friends and comrades and compatriots who share our worldview uh, in the Bay Area, young people, she said that they learn to self-censor themselves, that, that they learn and teach themselves how to navigate the social media landscape that we find ourselves in. She's written about this, I think, in a very evocative way. And I think it's just true uh, proof yeah. positive that that's the time that we find ourselves in. Well, and fundamentally, this is
1: the error of that way. Yes, it is. is. It doesn't mirror us being created in the image of God. God right. himself gives us a choice to believe in him or not believe in him. Mm. And here these constructors of society come along and they want to push us into a belief system. Uh, I'm really struggling to even see where a dictator has survived. It Mm. doesn't work. Eventually, they get caught. You Mm. even look at the Soviet Union. Yes. 70, 80 years, and then poof, it went away. Mm. And I just feel like it's one of the hidden corrections that God puts in culture and humanity because people do that. They self regulate and they don't talk about their true feelings and honesty is not out on the table Mm -hmm. and debate doesn't happen but you create an underground Mm -hmm. of resentment and resistance emotionally socially
0: and that becomes a force that usually takes down the dictator may i tell you this is in my view the most important narrative of american history in the 21st century how do you live in a constitutional republic at a time of a major, measurable, spiritual recession. Mm. That's the moment we find ourselves in. We are living in a time of a crisis of fatherhood. We are living in a time of a plague of loneliness. And it's underscored by this idea that somehow you can have liberty and freedom over time without virtue. Uh, virtue being a fancy word for moral excellence, that somehow you can maintain the American project, but somehow wall it off from the centrality of faith and religion. Back to John Adams. You know, Jim, John Adams gave an incredibly important speech to the Massachusetts militia in the very late part of the 18th century, well after the Constitutional Convention, and he said that the Constitution, right, was drafted uh, only for a moral and religious people, you know, that, that he said it was inadequate to, you know, to a country unlike the one that he was describing. He was not saying this is only a country for evangelical Christians, or this is only a country for fill in the blank. What he was saying definitively is that without matters of the spirit without the baseline of faith, the Judaic Christian tradition, without that biblical foundation on which all of the founders understood that our country was conceived in liberty, then you would have a different country. And so it seems to me that of all of the debates that we are having in the public square, and I devote a a substantial part of this uh, in the book, that religious liberty and the rights of conscience do animate ultimately the idea of the United States of America. James Madison, I mentioned earlier, the primary architect of our Constitution, he, he spoke at length, he wrote at length about the centrality of the rights of conscience and religious liberty as being you know the absolute foundation of the way that that he and we conceive the idea of this exceptional country.
1: And what's concerning with that is it feels like, and you talk to people, and there is something in the herd. We will feel it. We feel like we're teetering on a collapse mm. of these values, and therefore what you're talking about, something different is coming, mm. and it feels not correct, not right. Mm. To some, it will feel right. But you know, the question there becomes, what can we do as Christians? Mm. Are we fighting for this world? Are we fighting for this form of government so that we can be comfortable, so that we can be Mm -hmm. cozy, so we have expression? Because the alternative is, you know, not good in that we get persecuted, which is really the tradition of the church, frankly. But, you know, what do we do if we find ourselves in the wrap-up? generation where the Lord is coming, and Mm -hmm. things are moving quickly, and evil is spreading far and wide, and he's handed us over, as Romans says, to the deprivation of our mind Mm -hmm. where we can't tell what a man is, what a woman is, Mm -hmm. we disregard children, we kill our babies at alarming rates because of finances or other decisions. Not to be glib with all that, but this is what's happening, Mm -hmm. nothing new under the sun. So you look at all
0: that, and you're going, okay, Lord, what do we do? Mm You know, one of the most influential uh, essayists that I've ever been honored to read, and I, I, I'm pretty sure, Jim, uh, that I've, I've done my best to, to read everything that he wrote, which is George Orwell, right? Not a Christian, not a conservative, but he understood the, the, the terror of what would become a Soviet communism. And he wrote about it with great passion. And George Orwell made this observation. He said that the first duty of an intelligent person is to restate the obvious, and I think we have a duty to go tell a new generation the gospel of Jesus Christ. I think evangelization is absolutely at the core of reintroducing to a new generation the concept of human liberty and human dignity and the idea of what constitutes actual justice. I think it begins there. You know, in the public policy realms, The debate is the following. Does Silicon Valley have the answers? Does Wall Street have the answers? Does Washington, D.C. have the answers? Does Hollywood and Broadway and the entertainment elites, do they have the answers? And in my book, I decidedly say no, because it's not a top-down elite institution uh, reformation that we are looking at here. It has to be bottom-up. It begins in our families. It begins in our marriages. It begins in our neighborhoods and our communities. I think the church has a huge role to play here. I I believe very strongly that we have a moral duty to be intelligent. The gift of reason and faith together is an absolutely great gift. And Western civilization and the American story, the Constitution, We always make a distinction between our country and our faith. Of course we do, definitively. They're not the same thing. But St. Augustine said the following, As Christians, you are citizens of two places. You are ultimately a citizen of heaven, the city of God. But this side of eternity, you're in the city of man. And we are duty-bound to love and to serve our neighbors. And I believe that Jesus Christ gave us a beautiful model and paradigm that I think is timeless. And I think it fits in precisely into into the 21st century. Hmm. If I had a bumper sticker, it would say the following, relationships matter. You know, social media is an incredible way to connect with other people. It's an incredible way to connect with lots of people at one time. But in my view, Nothing replaces, in the era that we're in, personal relationships. And I really have learned this all across my time in Washington, which is now 35 years. You have to be in the hallways of Congress to connect with the members and their staffs. You have to be in the restaurants and the clubs. You have to see people in their offices. Relationships uh, are so central to everything that we do at Focus on the Family, and we try to apply that directly uh, in the most powerful, influential city in the world. You know, it's important to go sit down one-on-one with a U.S. senator and not talk about fourteen issues, but to talk about them. How are they doing? How is how is their marriage? How is their family? Uh, what's on their minds? you know, this is a substantial part of of what we do at Focus on the Family. I think it's our differentiation, but I think in Washington, it's also a central part uh, of what we're supposed to do, which is to deepen and to widen and to broaden relationships. And I think, Jim, once those relationships or friendships are established, it gives us the ability to share the gospel of Jesus Christ, not to push it, You know, but to be able within the context of a relationship or a friendship to say, this is what I believe and it's why I believe it. You could say almost make it available. Absolutely. Not pushing it, but
1: let's make it available so people know about it. Also, at the local level, Tim, I mean, getting engaged, doing school board, that's a big one right now. Mm. Uh, You're seeing a parental movement that is a force. And, you know, you look at some of the things occurring in the culture with Target or even. Uh, Bud Light and those kinds of things. There is a turning, it feels like, of the corner where some of the woke-ism is being challenged now. Mm. Comedians are challenging it. I think people are finally going, enough is enough. We always talk about the overreach, but it does kind of feel like certain aspects of the culture, the canaries in the mine, are occurring,
0: and people are going, this is getting to the point of being ridiculous. I think this is what makes focus on the family, a century at the gate, it makes us a lighthouse, right? That in the middle of all of this cultural chaos, that focus on the family, gospel-centric, brings the idea of continuity and stability and good order in a way that people say, you know...
1: Makes sense. It's a nice <laughs> way
0: to live. And may yeah. I say, in the context of authentic friendship and authentic relationships people are open, I think now more than ever, to that kind of ministry. In other words, I think we've turned a corner. You know, we, we, we can't see around corners, but I think for the first time, far beyond uh, people who share our worldview, I think people of goodwill on both sides of the proverbial aisle are saying, this is different. This is a problem. I'm seeing things with my children and grandchildren that I've never witnessed before. They're coming home from school or they're coming home from a club or whatever it is. And this is just not you know, in, in, my, in my context of, of how I can respond. And I think that the kind of revolution in uh, society and in the kind of moral realm that is being pushed by the elite institutions in the United States in summary, is what we're talking about here. And I think that one of the things that we can do on a very personal, one-on-one basis is to go to the neighbor, to go to the colleague, to go uh, to the person of influence or power, and be able to say, let's put all of that outside the room for a minute, and let's talk as human beings, one-on-one. What's bothering you? What's up? And frankly, how, how can I be of help or service to you and your family?
1: Yeah. I think right here at the end, Tim, it's good to equip people. Uh, mm. What are the resources we can uh, obtain to get up to speed? Certainly your book is yes. one of them. Yes. To be able
0: to be an influence mm. for good. This is precisely what I wanted to do in Toward a More Perfect Union. In the first third, I wanted to set out where are we? You know, what are we dealing with here? The second third of the book, I said, uh, here are some real-life examples, and the last third of this book is the one that is definitively applicable to parents, grandparents, families, aunts, uncles, cousins, etc. And here's the answer. Go to the Civil War battlefields. Take your children there. Take them to the Revolutionary War battlefields. Take them to the national parks. Take them to the national forests. Go to good museums. Let them go and, you know, without a a 40-point social media plan, (laughs) let them go up to Little Round Top at Gettysburg. Let them go to Valley Forge in Pennsylvania. Bring them to Washington, D.C. and visit the World War II Memorial at night. Walk up those steps to the Lincoln Memorial. Go down the incline to the Vietnam Wall and let them run their hands over those engraved names of patriots, right? Uh, Theodore Roosevelt said, you know, Roosevelt's one of my favorite uh, Americans. He said, every American one time should stand at the south rim of the Grand Canyon and just look. Hmm. Jim, I remember standing on the windiest day in October in Kansas, Kansas, and just watching the way that the wind swept Across the place, it was beautiful to me. I remember being in the Dakotas, you know, uh, and and just experiencing uh, the the Great Plains. You know, it's it, it is a remarkable country, and it cannot be ultimately absorbed by social media, by video, etc. So I think we're 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 honor bound to take our kids there, take our grandkids, go to the Statue of Liberty, go to Ellis Island and let them just look and absorb. And my sense is that combined with all the things that we at Focus on the Family care about, family, marriage, parenting, human life, religious liberty, I think that the sum total is a beautiful way to address the challenges that we face uh, in 21st century America.
1: That's so good. Uh, Toward a more perfect union, the moral and cultural case for teaching the great American story. Tim, you've done a great job representing the content. We
0: can't cover it all. Thanks for being with us. I'm so grateful. And I'll close by saying, Jim, that there's a reason that Abraham Lincoln called our country the last best hope of earth. It was true then, and it's true now. That's so true. Thanks for being here.
1: God bless. Well, I love sitting down with Tim for that great discussion. He articulates with such clarity and conviction, and I hope this episode of Refocus has inspired you to engage with others respectfully about what America stands for and about your faith in Christ. And what great reminders uh, in this conversation from Tim about the vision our founding fathers had for this great country. But even more importantly, uh, he reminded us of what our role is as followers of Jesus Christ to impact the culture for him by developing relationships and winsomely sharing God's truth when opportunities come our way. That is the way to do it. For follow-up to this conversation, we have a number of links for you in the program notes. There's a video series I'd like you to see called How to Be Salt and Light in Our Culture. Check that out and some articles we've provided as well. And then, of course, Tim's great book is Toward a More Perfect Union. And with a gift of any amount, I'll send you a copy of that book as our way of saying thank you for helping us with this ministry. And that's really how we are able to provide uh, these podcasts and the broadcasts and the resources at folks support this ministry. And uh, I hope you can do that monthly. If not, a one-time gift is great. Now I get to take another question for the inbox segment. Uh, this question is from Anna.
0: Hi, Jim. I really like listening to your podcast. I have a question. I notice in today's society, they really promote critical race theory um, among our community. And I noticed that they do tend to push a victim mentality with the black community. I was just wondering what your thoughts are and just how the black community can overcome this victim mentality and how to recognize if they when they have a victim mentality versus if something's really racist since the media can tend to twist things that actually happen or um, really hype up something that was small and wasn't racist. Thanks.
1: Anna, one thing for sure, I'm not an expert in this area, but when I look at it, usually you can find answers in the Word of God. I think of Galatians 5.19, and in that scripture, uh, Paul is sharing with us the fruit of the enemy. And there's a long list of sexual issues, but also it says this, that the fruit of Satan, the enemy of our soul, includes enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, and dissensions. There's other sexual comments in there, too, in that list. But those really, uh, I think, speak to this issue. And it's not a racial issue in that context. It's a spiritual issue. And I think as the body of Christ and the body of Christ obviously is made up of us people, we need to exhibit the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, goodness, uh, mercy, longsuffering, And when there's division and disunity, it usually points to a spiritual illness. And so I would include all of us, not just the black community, but we all need to be seeking a resolution that is uh, from God's heart. Nobody thinks racism is appropriate spiritually or any other way. And I would just encourage people to kind of order themselves around the Word of God and not worry about what the media and others are saying. Thanks for the question, Anna. And because I used it here on the podcast, I'll send you a copy of my book, Refocus. I hope you enjoy it. And now if you have a question for me, please send it to me by clicking on the uh, tab on the right side of the show page that says leave a voicemail. Thanks for listening to Refocus with Jim Daly. I'll encourage you to tell others and like, listen, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Next time on Refocus, my guest is Seth Dillon, founder of the Babylon Bee. He'll help equip us to engage the culture with a
0: sense of humor. And that's the Christian on the front lines of the culture battle today. He loves the truth. He loves reality as God made it and intended it. He loves God's design. And he's defending that against the the all-out war to destroy it that's coming from the outside in the culture. It's not motivated by hatred. It's
1: motivated by love for what's behind us. That's on the next Refocus with Jim Daly.
0: Are you a pastor? Then you know ministry is full of challenges. But those challenges sometimes come from lies that you believe about your role and expectations of you. As a pastor, you and your spouse need to be refreshed and encouraged. And that's why Focus on the Family presents the Focused Pastor Couples Conference. Join us as we hear from Paul David Tripp, Dr. Greg Smalley, Ted Cunningham, and more. Mark your calendar to join us on October 28th through 30th right here at Focus on the Family in Colorado Springs. Visit thefocusedpastor.com slash refresh for more details.